Today, I'd like to welcome to the Pod MD studio Dr. Christine Premdis Rogers. Dr. Rogers is an experienced specialist endodontist based in Sydney. Christine has worked in general practice, hospital service, and as a specialist academic and clinical lecturer in both Australia and the United Kingdom throughout her career. She has a strong focus on educating her patients about the endodontic process as she understands that endodontic care can be nerve-wracking for many patients. Today, we'll be discussing the topic of endodontic diagnosis. We do hope you enjoy this podcast, but please remember that the advice here is of a general nature and is not intended as specific advice about a given patient. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the doctor, not PodMD. If you do have a patient on whom you require specific advice, then please seek advice from a colleague with appropriate expertise in that area. Christine, thanks for talking with us on PodMD today. Oh, thank you for having me. The topic of today's discussion is endodontic diagnosis. Can you describe for our listeners when they should treat or not treat? Yes, certainly. The first thing is we need a diagnosis. So that means it's the usual systematic collection of information, including a description from our patient of the symptoms they're experiencing, previous dental history for the tooth or area, which is easier if it's actually one of our regular patients, their medical history, the timeline of the pain and any aggravating or stimulating factors and clinical and radiographic examination. It's important that we do undertake some pulp sensibility tests for the tooth that we suspect or the patient suspects is the cause of the pain and for adjacent and or depending on what teeth the patient has, the contralateral tooth. Um, A rule of thumb is that there should be two or more signs or symptoms to support our diagnosis and decision to initiate treatment on a tooth. If we're in doubt, the patient may have to wait to be reassessed at a later date or we can consider an onward referral. We shouldn't be tempted to treat the tooth if our examination findings are inconclusive or conflicting and that actually happens more often than not. So once the causative tooth is identified, then the decision regarding whether to treat or not relies on the case assessment. And a good example of a case assessment form is that from the American Association of Endodontics, which grades cases into a degree of difficulty, either minimal, moderate or high difficulty. And the kind of things it questions and encourages us to look at is, has, for instance, the tooth previously had root canal treatment? From the radiographs, are there, is there any evidence of any procedural errors? Are there short fillings present? Can the to- patient tolerate um, dental dam? If it's a regular patient, we'll know if they have a strong gag reflex and any anxiety about dental work being carried out in the mouth, particularly towards the posterior teeth. How wide they can comfortably open the mouth and the location and orientation of the tooth. From the radiographs, we need to assess the curvature of the roots. If there are any unusual features, such as an additional root, Can we actually see the root canals? And if there's an associated apical radiolucent lesion, how big is it? And does it affect any adjacent teeth or anatomical structures? So when considering all of these factors, if they fall outside our experience or comfort zone, then we can make a decision as to whether or not we want to treat the tooth um, and maybe we consider referral. How would a patient who requires endodontic therapy typically present? So symptoms can range from no knowledge and no um, experience of pain to acute pain with all grades in between. 
One of the recent changes in endodontic diagnosis has been the state of the pulp. So we used to use terms such as reversible pulpitis, meaning that the inflammation could resolve following appropriate interventions such as removal of tooth decay um, and placing restoration, and irreversible pulpitis, where we assessed the tooth and the patient's symptoms and felt that that indicated a level of pulpal inflammation that would not resolve from simple conservative treatment. But those terms have now changed to reflect possibly more of the histological status of the pulp that we imagine is there. So reversible is now termed mild and moderate and irreversible is termed severe pulpitis. Patients presenting with acute pain typically present with some form of anxiety or distress. They usually haven't slept and will report that. They've usually tried a whole range of analgesics and not found an effective way to manage the pain experienced. Sometimes they can present sipping cold water, which they find gives relief. They can describe the pain as being triggered by thermal stimuli of foods that they eat or drink or spontaneous onset. However, as the inflammation may not have spread to the apical tissues, the tooth may not give an abnormal response to percussion of the tooth or palpation of the tissues around the apex. And so effectively, in our examination, we're relying on pulp sensibility testing and the history. If we've got a situation where pulp necrosis has occurred, then the pulp will not respond to any pulp sensibility tests, and that's a definite finding, and typically can be observed following traumatic injury. Sometimes the canals can be infected, and then apical periodontitis may be symptomatic, and the tooth will respond to percussion and palpation in an abnormal sense to the adjacent teeth and may also be visible radiographically, and that aids diagnosis. An acute apical abscess is fairly obvious. It's an inflammatory response to the pulp infection and the necrosis with a spreading cellulitis pus formation. Sometimes the patient may have a temperature and lymphadenopathy. Um, the most serious of these would be those associated with lower posterior molar teeth, and we have a spreading cellulitis across the neck where there's always the risk of um, embarrassment of the airway. And then in addition to our normal um, adjunct of analgesics and oral antibiotics, they may actually need referral for um, intravenous antibiotics. What are the risks associated with endodontic therapy? So endodontic therapy is actually fairly predictable and very successful, but it is a technical procedure and effectively we're using fine instruments in narrow confined spaces. So the most prevalent risk would be that of file fracture. Occasionally we can have perforation and that's to do with the orientation of our axis cavity sometimes and the orientation of the tooth and just in trying to trace very fine calcified narrow canals. And occasionally our irrigation fluids can leak into the surrounding supporting soft and hard tissues. However, although we need to advise our patients of these potential risks as part of our discussion for informed consent, the incidence is actually about 3%. So it's fairly low. And with care during treatment for the length of our measurements and the use of instrumentation, um, how deep we put our irrigation needles and the shape of the irrigation needle tips into the root canal system and using single uses, usage of files, we can do a lot to minimise the occurrence of these risks. What are the endodontic treatment options for a tooth which has failing endodontic therapy and a post-retained core? 
So the options are either non-surgical retreatment, which will involve the replacement of the post and crown, or root-end microsurgery, leaving the post and crown in situ. And so the decision really depends on whether it's an anterior or posterior tooth. Whether If it's an anterior tooth, the aesthetics of the crown and if the patient's happy with the crown. The actual width and length and construct of the post and the restorability of the remaining tooth structure. The patient's willingness for multiple appointments, particularly if we are doing a retreatment and replacing the crown and post, and associated costs. If there are any apical radiolucent lesions and we're considering root-end microsurgery, and that's the patient's also pre preferred preference, um, then we need to know the size of that and um, its position and in particular related to adjacent anatomical structures. So what is the success rate for endodontic therapy? Oh, the success rate's really high. It partly depends on the tooth that's actually being treated. So our highest success rates are for teeth with vital pulps, and that'll be in excess of 90%. And that's achievable by both dentists and general practice, as well as specialists. If we have to deal with infected canals and apical periodontitis, then the size of the lesion is indicative of associated apical periodontitis. And... In research studies, we've noticed a small drop in success rate. So we'd be quoting patients 70 to 80%. Retreatment actually falls in the same group, but really the success rate improves if we can identify before we start treatment the reasons for failure and whether we can actually improve on that technically or whether actually it's going to be a difficult challenge. And so the kind of things we're looking at are, was rubber dam used during the previous treatment? Um, how many visits? whether the dentist had explained if there were any difficulty locating canals, if there's any missed root canal anatomy, that type of thing. When should a dentist refer? So when the diagnosis is not clear and suggestive of oral facial pain, then a second opinion is always worthwhile getting at that stage. Sadly, we do see many patients still presenting with multiple treatments where they've been complaining of pain and have believed it to be associated with one or more of their teeth. And in order to provide relief, the dentist has initiated treatment, but then find that the patient returns complaining of symptoms that do represent some form of pulpitic symptoms and then initiate treatment on another tooth. So really we do need a second opinion if we find that we're in that situation and we want to prevent carrying out unnecessary treatment. If we have a concern that a satisfactory result may not be achievable, such as difficult access to the tooth, and typically that could be something like an upper second molar tooth, which can be rotated, where the crown can be rotated distobuckly and therefore difficult to get to, and also difficult for the patient to stay open wide enough to accommodate the use of instruments in the roots of those um, teeth. If the access is through a crown or bridge, the angulation of the structure may be different to the actual original position and morphology of the tooth. And so therefore drilling a hole through the occlusal access of a cast restoration created by a technician, which bears no relationship to the morphology of the tooth, can be misleading and we can end up creating an access cavity which unduly weakens the tooth. And sometimes in the worst case scenario can actually cause a perforation at the cervical area of dentine. If we have difficulty in isolating the tooth, if radiographically we notice that there's um, resorptive defects present in the root structure or the crown of the tooth, if we're dealing with 
immature developing tooth that's had a traumatic injury, but the tooth is not responding to the initial endodontic therapy. And we can see signs, for instance, of increasing root surface inflammatory resorption. And if we see radiographically that the canals are not easily visible, and the pulp chamber is calcified, and so are the canals, then calcified canals can be difficult and time-consuming. And if the root curvature is greater than 30 degrees, then that is also technically challenging. So those might be situations where you'd consider referring. And uh, what role does the dentist play in the treatment of the tooth? So all dentists are trained to undertake endodontic treatment, in which case you're responsible for the endodontic treatment and restorability of the tooth and the overall care for that treatment plan. If the patient is referred, then the patient is returned to the referring dentist for provision of the coronal seal, which actually can be more important than the endodontic treatment itself, and if indicated, a cuspal coverage restoration after the root canal treatment. Christine, thank you for your time here today in the PodMD studio. To sum up for us, could you please identify the three key take-home messages from today's podcast? The first one would be diagnosis. If it's not clear which tooth needs treatment, then don't treat until there's enough corroborative evidence to suggest that we should be. Second point would be to assess the restorability of the tooth. Um, Usually you're the clinician who has the job of restoring it post-treatment. And um, sometimes it's very difficult as an endodontist to assess your abilities and you are the better judge. So please do have a good assessment of the restorability of the tooth before referring. And in the case of you're undertaking root canal treatment and there's a procedural accident and timing is a concern, such as with a hypochlorite accident, then do call your local endodontist for advice at that time. Most will return your call as a matter of urgency to assist you. Thanks again for your time and the insights you've provided. Oh, thank you. Thank you.